Good morning, everyone. This is perfect. I love this space, the Humble Center, one of my favorite places on campus. And it's perfect for storytelling. And just about every seat is taken. So it's all working out according to plan, and our five storytellers are over there ready to go. I'm Dwayne Stolzfus, chair of the Corps and director of the Corps, chair of the communication department. It's my pleasure to welcome you. And to also ask if you would, uh, please make sure that you've put away any devices, phones, and so forth, so that you are fully entered into this community time together. The five speakers this morning were all in identity, culture, and community class in the fall. And during their time as first-year students, they were invited to craft a story. So they spent time writing a personal essay, multiple drafts, getting feedback, shaping that, and then transitioning from that written form to a, a shared spoken story, which they did in, in the fall at the end of the semester. And then professors nominated students whose stories they thought were especially engaging and, and powerful, each in their own way, to participate in, in a convocation. So the five students sharing were, were five who were selected from a number of all well-qualified storytellers. I'd like to introduce the five speakers now, and, and I'll ask them just to stand when I, when I call their names, and uh, the introduction comes in their words. So first, um, let's welcome Emma Zerker. <laughs> Emma writes, I grew up in Apple Creek, Ohio. I'm majoring in ASL and minoring in art. My story is about finding common ground. And now, Diego Torres. Diego writes, I'm from Goshen, Indiana. I'm double majoring in history and secondary education while participating in choir, tennis, and track. The story I will be sharing is about my best friend. And now, Willa Beidler. Willa writes, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm majoring in theater and minoring in sustainability and music. I will be sharing about something that happened to me on April 1st, 2019. And now, Brian Hernandez. Brian says, I was born and raised for the better part of my childhood in Apan, Hildago, Mexico, but grew up in Goshen, Indiana. I'm currently double majoring in computer science and sustainability studies. The story I'll be sharing today is about someone I left in Mexico who eventually came and helped me become the person I am today. And lastly, Olivia Kral. <laughs> Olivia writes, I'm from Carmel, Indiana, and I'm majoring in history. 
The story I will be telling explains how I came to understand my place in my family and community. Thank you to all the storytellers for the good work you put in to prepare for today. We're going to now invite Emma Zerker to come forward, and when she's finished, Diego will follow, and in that, uh, in that order, we'll hear from all five speakers, and at the end, we'll have time for applause. Welcome, Emma Zerker. So I graduated um, from high school in a class of 97 students, and so going to a small school meant that we all had to dabble in a lot of different things, and this allowed me the unique opportunity to interact with people with lots of different skills and interests, and I became friends with many of them. And one of these friends was Ren. So we were both soccer players, but we were also in band and choir and theater together. And even though we had a lot of these extracurriculars in common, we were still an unlikely pair of friends. I was never vocal with my opinion, ever. Um, but Ren, on the other hand, was never afraid to tell anyone and everyone exactly what he thought. He was the loudest, most hard-headed, stubborn, poor listener I knew. In February of 2018, I watched as students my age planned the March for Our Lives following the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. And I knew that that was something that I needed to be a part of, that I couldn't just sit off to the side, staying quiet anymore. So even with the fear of making people upset, I decided that I would plan a walkout for my school. So leading up to the walkout, I spoke in front of classrooms and talked to peers and raised awareness for the event. And Ren didn't really like seeing his tactics of outspokenness being used for a cause that he strongly opposed. So while I was actively planning this protest, he was actively planning a protest to protest this protest. <laughs> In our small rural hometown, it was common to see stars, stripes, and everything red, white, and blue um, as a common fashion choice. But on March 14th, the morning of the walkout, this was ever more present. Um, I remember seeing paint on people's faces and American flags sticking out of backpacks with the zippers holding, holding the pole in place, and I thought to myself, ah, yes, yeah, you're for America. Me too. I saw Ren inquire for the first time that morning, that was when the first time I saw him, and he gave me a look that I normally saw him reserve for opponents that he hated on the soccer field but that morning it was for me. So needless to say, he was not among the 60 or so people who walked out of the school and into about a foot of snow that morning. But he also wasn't among the people who deliberately berated me for my actions. Even so, we both spent the rest of the day steaming in our own concentrated beliefs, wanting to avoid the other for as long as we possibly could. But like I said before, it was a small school, we were all involved in the same things, and so we couldn't avoid each other because we had musical practice. So the end of the day rolls around, and we're off to musical practice, where we're co-leading the show, Annie, Get Your Gun. <laughs> and I was Annie Oakley, champion sharpshooter of the Wild West. So there I am on stage with my new gun hater label, dragging around this gun, that I had just been protesting. 
Ren's character was a competing marksman to mine, and both of our characters were falling madly in love. Great. <laughs> the scene we practiced that day was the peak moment of tension between our characters when they're fighting for power and holding on to their pride while desperately clinging to the relationship they already had. And it really felt too familiar. On a normal day, we might have gone to the weight room. It was the off-season for both of us, and so there we would have both done our separate workouts while secretly competing with the other. But it wasn't a normal day, so I went to the lobby of our high school, and I wrote him a letter. And I told him that I admired him. He was unapologetically authentic, even when it upset people. And I had learned from him how to stand up for what I believe in, even when what I believed was so different from what he what he believed. But ultimately, I told him that I cared about our friendship more than I cared about being right. And I thought we both could be right. So I folded up the notebook paper, and I took it to the band room, where I knew his backpack would be seated there, as it was every day while he was working out. <clears throat> so for months, he never said anything about the note or that day. And neither of us apologized for anything, and I think that's because we both knew that there was nothing that we needed to apologize for. But what I learned that day is that I need to value people for who they are as they are. Ren and I are polar opposites, and I don't know if I ever see that changing, but through our stubbornness, which translated into a commitment to our friendship, we were able to work with our differences. And what we found was, through respectful, often very vulnerable conversation, was that when we set aside the political labels attached to the things that we believe, there's really a lot that we agree on. We just found really different ways of getting to the same conclusions. So, Ren is still the loudest most hard-headed, stubborn person I know. But what's changed is that we're both a lot better at listening. We're still friends, and I would venture to say that we're even better friends than we were before all of this happened. And he told me recently that he still has the letter I wrote him, and he keeps it with all of his other important papers, but not in like a filing cabinet. He keeps it in an old machine gun ammunition crate. <laughs> Thank you. So before I start, I want to preface this speech uh, the same way that I prefaced it in my ICC class, which was originally I was supposed to give a speech about seeking your discomfort and getting out of your comfort zone, trying new things, and how that related to me over the last four years of my life and how I ended up here at GC. But I wrote that speech my senior year of high school to give to a group of freshmen and sophomores at my high school. So. The night before I was supposed to give this speech to my ICC class, I was just sitting there, reading it over, thinking, this whole speech is about seeking my discomfort, and I'm doing the most comfortable thing possible by just 
recycling a speech that I've already given. So that night at around 10.30, I decided to completely scrap that speech and start over. And to me, seeking your discomfort is learning to, you grow and learn the most about yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And that uncomfortable situation for me was telling a different story, a story that makes me, or puts me in a much more vulnerable place, and a story that I never told before up until that day. And that is this story. Friends, throughout our lives, we will have so many and different relationships with all of them. There are different levels of friendship, an acquaintance, a friend, a close friend, best friends, and then there's your best friend, someone that you've connected with like no one else. And to get to this level of friendship, it can take a lot of hard work. Unlike most people, I was given this best friend, my twin sister. This is not working. There we go. Madi. When I was little, I had trouble using my tongue, and because of this, Madi learned to talk long before I did. My parents told us that when we were little, I would speak gibberish and then she would translate it to them. So, for example, I would say some sort of nonsense and then she would tell my parents that I needed food and she would always be right. So yeah, you could say that we had some twin telepathy. But, like all friendships, it has not always been smooth sailing. At my middle school, there was a very stereotypical hierarchy. Athletes at the top and music kids at the bottom. Being on the varsity basketball team, I would have been considered more popular at that time. But since Madi was in musical and band, she was not. Since I was considered a more popular middle school boy, all I could think about was myself. I could not see that my best friend was struggling more than she ever had. She did not have many people to hang out with, and at the same time, I was hanging out with people without even thinking to invite her. At the end of my sixth grade year, I was going to the movies with my girlfriend, my best friend, and his girlfriend. Before I left, my mom told me, hey, you should, you should invite your sister. And I looked at, her, looked at her and said, no, she's not cool enough. And then I left. I didn't see anything wrong with saying that. I came home that night. My mom sat me down with tears in her eyes. She told me that my sister sat at home all night crying because she felt abandoned by her twin. I thought she was being dramatic, so I went upstairs, told my sister a simple sorry, and then I went to bed. Our relationship continued to be damaged for the rest of that year. Things eventually started to turn around at the beginning of my seventh grade year when my girlfriend broke up with me. And my friend group decided they didn't really want to hang out with me anymore because they thought it'd be awkward if the two of us hung out together. Now, all of a sudden, I was the one with no one to hang out with. I would spend my weekends at home with nothing to do. I'd fallen into a downward spiral, but there was someone there to catch me, my twin sister. Without thinking, she brought me into her friend group she had made in band. She acted as if the last year had not even happened. They all became my best friends, but most importantly, I got my best friend back. 
She was the closest person to me for the next five years. And then, senior year hit. At the start of senior year, I felt like I was on top of the world. I loved my friends, classes, and I was captain of the tennis team, something I had wanted since my freshman year. I once again failed to see that I was reverting back to my sixth grade self. I was becoming more and more of a big-headed idiot, and because of this, Maddie and I started getting into lots of fights. One day, my mom sat us down and told us to talk about it and get to the bottom of what was going on. I told Maddie that I found her annoying and that basically I thought her being the head drum major of band was embarrassing. She looked at me and said, so you think I'm a loser? I didn't say anything. That's all she needed to know. She started sobbing. I'll never forget the words she said. My twin brother thinks I'm a loser for the thing that I'm most proud of. For some reason, I was the mad one, and I stormed out of the room, just like in sixth grade, only thinking about myself. After a few hours, I came to the shocking realization that I may be the biggest jerk on the planet. She was the head drum major of one of the best marching bands in the state. She was the leader of over 200 people that all looked up to her and respected her. And at that moment, I knew that I was the true loser. I went to her room, I still know why she even let me in, and I told her that I was sorry. Not a half-ass one this time. We talked for hours, and before I left, I made sure she knew I would always be proud of her, because that's what best friends do. One thing you should all know about Madi is that she's one of the best singers that I've heard. Her dream used to be to sing on Broadway, but she was never given the chance to show people what she could do, because our high school musical director cared more about what you look like than your actual talent. Our senior year, we did the musical Annie, and I was cast as Oliver Warbucks, the lead guy role, and she was cast as an orphan. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. Our whole lives, I was the athlete, she was the singer. I knew how crushed she was not to get the part she wanted, and I knew it'd be difficult for her to see me as one of the lead roles. How you know someone is your best friend is that they're there for you, no matter what they're going through. I would come home a lot of nights complaining about all the songs and the lines I had to memorize, not even thinking that she would have given anything to memorize those songs and lines. But that didn't matter. She was always there for me, reassuring me that I was doing great, she couldn't wait for the community to see me perform, and that me being bald actually looked okay. As you can see, she was graciously lying, but <laughs> I appreciated it at the time. We spent lots of time together that spring, and by the end of our senior year, we were closer than we'd ever been. Like I said before, making friends and growing those relationships takes a lot of hard work. No friendship will consist of total happiness, but what makes a friendship stronger is getting through those rough patches. Maddie and I have been through some rough patches, but no matter how horrible of a person I've been in my past, she's always loved me and had my back. She's the most real, talented, strong-willed, loving person I know, and she will forever be my best friend. Thank you.
Oh, also, I just want to give a quick happy birthday shout out to my friend Anna Osborne, big one nine. Woohoo! I'm Willa, and today I will be talking about what happened on April 1st of last year. So, it was a great day. I was super pumped. I had just gotten back from a weekend at the beach, and I was super ready. I was going to hop in my truck and go to school. This is my truck. I just had to put a picture. I love it. And I realized my friend had left their backpack in my car. So I texted him real quick, and I said, OK, I'll bring you your backpack before school. I never got the chance. So to get to school every day, I took a highway called Route 30. If you've ever been to Lancaster, you probably know it. It's insane. It's got lanes crossing everywhere and merging. There's at one point where another major highway joins it. Uh, this is like a top view looking at like how wild it is. Yeah, it's insane. So I drove this road to school every day for seven years but I know people who refuse to drive it ever because it is dangerous and terrifying. So on this particular day, I was in my truck in the left lane, going the speed of traffic, doing everything I could. I had my music playing, and all of a sudden, traffic just stopped. I don't know why, it just stopped. And I knew, driving a 2002 Ford pickup truck, that I could not stop in time to not hit the car in front of me. So I slowed down and started to swerve into the shoulder, but I overcorrected, hit the divider, spun out 180 degrees, rolled over onto the roof, and rolled back. Now, I don't know how long I was in motion. It probably wasn't as long as I think it was, but it felt like forever. Um, and I can tell you that if you ever see a movie where it shows the inside of a car while it's rolling over, it's pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> I only opened my eyes for a split second, but in that split second, I saw my windshield was blue and coming in towards me. My hair was flying across my face, glass was flying everywhere, and I immediately shut my eyes back tight and waited till it stopped. And in that moment, I was thinking to myself, this is it. This, this could be it. But it wasn't. And as quick as it started, it stopped. And I was sitting there, back on my four wheels, facing the opposite direction of traffic in the shoulder that I had originally started in. And I remember sitting there and just thinking, what? And I was weirdly calm, like my head was all there. And I just thought, OK, I smell burning. I have to get out of this car. So I reached over and grabbed my phone and realized my music was still playing. <laughs> yeah. And the lyrics that were playing at that time were, just come and take me away, just come and take me away. So startled, I took my phone and I tried to open my door, but because I had rolled onto the driver's side, it was smashed in and wouldn't open. And I realized, thankfully, that my window had completely shattered out. So I grabbed my phone, unbuckled, and pulled myself up and out of the window and jumped down onto the concrete. Uh, at that moment, I saw a woman pull over. I don't know her name, but she was a godsend. And she came rushing towards me and told me to get away from the car because it was leaking fluid. 
and I turned around and saw that not only was it leaking fluid, but I had forgot to put it in park, and it was rolling towards us. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we eventually it like rolled back into the shoulder and it stopped and everything was good. Um, so she told me she would call the police and I was going to call my parents. But my parents were working and it took me five tries to get one of them on the phone. And eventually I got my dad on the phone. I said, okay, dad, this is really important. I was just in a car accident. And I told him where I was and then the police showed up and I had to hang up. And it was at that moment that I realized that there was blood dripping down my hand. Um, so this is where it kind of gets fuzzy because it seemed like everyone arrived all at once. We had fire trucks, police, uh, EMTs, everyone all got there all at one moment. Um, so I remember seeing people trying to open my truck to get my wallet out, but they couldn't open the door. Um, and then the EMTs like swarmed me and like rushed me onto a gurney and were like, we have to take you to the hospital. I was like, I'm fine. And they were like, no, you're not. So they loaded me into the ambulance and they took me to the hospital. And there was this one EMT who I'm very grateful for. He was very cool. His name was Justin. And he was like super young and chill. And he would just joke with me and made me feel super comfortable. Um, and he went through this long list of questions that they have to ask anyone in a car accident. And he said, all right, this is the hard one. How many times did you roll? And at that moment, I had been doubting that what happened actually happened because I thought, wait, nothing like this could ever happen to me, right? Like, this is insane. But it was that moment that I realized, yeah, nope, this happened. So I responded only once, I think. And then we got to the, um, the hospital, and they unloaded me, and I had a neck brace on because even though I like, didn't have serious injuries, they didn't know that. So they were required to put a neck brace on me so I could only see through my periphery. And the driver of the ambulance leaned over the gurney and said, you're really lucky. You know, your seatbelt saved your life. And at that moment, I just froze. And I was like, OK. So they wheeled me back into a room, hooked me up to a bunch of monitors. My dad was there waiting for me, trying to be really calm as like his calm doctor self. But internally, he was freaking out. Um, and they bandaged my wrist, they got x-rays of my wrist, um, and then the doctor came in and I saw Justin come and talk to the doctor. And he said, 18-year-old um, female, car crash, self-extricated, meaning I had gotten myself out of the car. And those words hit me really hard because they felt so clinical. Like, I, it, it just made everything so much more real. So eventually I was released, and I walked out with just a bandage on my wrist and some pain in my back. And my dad told me we had to stop by the tow yard and clear everything out of my truck on the way home from the hospital. So we got to the tow yard, and yeah, that's my truck. Um, I climbed into the driver's seat, stand crouching so that I wouldn't sit on glass. Um, the roof was crushed in, so I felt extremely lucky that I'm short, because if not, I could have had a head injury. And I pulled everything that had made that car mine and put it into a garbage bag and loaded it into my dad's car. And then I was like being bombarded with all these texts and calls and 
Evidently, on the way to school, a bunch of people had been stuck in the traffic caused by my accident and had seen my truck and recognized it for its iconic bumper stickers and had contacted the school. So they knew about it before I even told them. So, is there any more pictures? Yes. What did I learn from this? Well, it has not been easy. Um, trauma is a very real, prevalent thing that still continues to this day. Um, that moment I described where I opened my eyes comes back to me a lot whenever I get stressed. I still get flashes of it. I get nightmares about it, not gonna lie. Um, and I still have pretty severe back pain that I deal with on a daily basis. But I did bring some good stuff from this. So on the way home from getting stuff out of my car and going to the hospital and all this madness, we were driving down my street and I saw there was a local church and there were little daffodil buds coming up from the soil. And I thought, wow, that's really beautiful and really cool. Like, and I kept thinking, what if I had died and I never saw daffodils again? And for the next couple of weeks, that just kept coming to me. Like, what if I had never heard my choir sing again? What if I had never heard my mom laugh again? What if that conversation with my friend about his backpack in my car was the last conversation we ever had? And it gave me this whole new outlook on how I lived my life. Because everything that seemed inane and unimportant became so much more important and so much more beautiful. Thank you. So, leaving Mexico at the age of six came with many consequences. Not only do I have uh, a very vague memory of it, but I left so many significant people behind. Aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, but most notably, my brother. You see, my brother showed that he could hold his own in Mexico, especially in his academics, and my mother didn't feel it was right to take him to a whole new, completely new country if he was doing just fine where he was. Two years after we left, I was in elementary school where our teachers would ask us, describe your family to your peers or to the class. And I would do just fine until I got around to my brother. I would say the basic things I knew about him, like the fact that he was really intelligent or that he was older than me, but anything after that was just a complete blur. After years went on and I kept giving the same answer for the question, my classmates would get curious and they would come and ask me, so you don't know your brother or do you talk to him at all? And I would say, I don't know him as much as I would like. And yes, I do talk to him, but you see, we live two completely different lives that we really can't relate to each other in any way. Making it when we did talk, we were, our conversations were very short and awkward and it ultimately made our relationship more difficult than it needed to be. Four years after we left Tapman, we, our communication became more frequent. I could tell that my brother wanted to be a part of my life. He would text me until we found the common ground, and he would Skype me as much as he could. And even though he lived more than 2,200 miles away, worked the job to get by, and still had to keep up with schoolwork, he never failed to wish us a happy birthday, or congratulate us when we reach the major milestone in our lives. 
But you see, expressing your feelings through a Facebook post, Skype call, or text will never be being face to face with someone. And whether we liked it or not, it was hurting us and we wanted to see each other. Finally, one day my brother said, I'm gonna apply for a visa and hopes to come and see you guys. But if any of you know anything about applying for a visa, it's that it's incredibly hard to get it approved. And after years went by, alongside numerous failed attempts, and the immigration policies were only getting stricter, and we were losing hope. We were coming to terms with the fact that we might never ever see him again. It was not until January 2013 that my mom came into my room and she told me, your brother is gonna apply for the visa again. Let's pray and hope a miracle happens. We waited two weeks for it to be processed and after those two weeks, my mom got a text from my brother saying, hey, mom, I got the visa approved. I'm coming to see you guys in December. And I was in my room when I heard the loudest scream I've ever come from my mom's room. And she ran out, out of her room and said, he got it. He got the visa. You guys, he's coming to see us. And we all couldn't believe it. We were all so excited. And we all just hugged each other and shed tears of joy. I remember when the feeling finally settled in. The feeling that came with the fact that the long wait was finally over was unlike any I've ever felt before. Finally, I'm sorry. Um, finally, after, after it was time, my family found out about it and they were all so excited. They couldn't stop talking about it and any family event we went to, we, that was the talk of everything. They would talk about how would he react to his little brother being taller than him or how would he react to his little sisters not being the little girls he knew and how mature they were. But most importantly, how would he react to seeing his mother after seven years? Finally, it was time and in December, we headed to O'Hare in Chicago where we waited for hours because immigration really took their time with him and wanted to make sure he wasn't here to do anything sketchy. I was on my phone when my aunt screamed, there he is, there he is. And my mom, who is sitting right there, hey mom, completely ignored all signs of staying in the waiting area. And she ran at him and hugged him. And I could see that a piece of my mom was put back in place. Then we headed back home to Indiana. And I was just in the car and I was looking at him the whole time back home. He must have thought I was really weird at the time, but I was mesmerized. I mean, this person who I hadn't seen in a long time was sitting right next to me, and I thought it was impossible to be able to see him again. Two weeks into his stay, he familiarized himself with everyone, and he was a joy to be around. Nobody could match his positive vibe, and he was just such an outgoing person. But in the third week of his stay, I noticed something. I was so focused on the fact that he was just here that I didn't ask him for any advice. And I wasn't getting any counsel from my brother who is this big person. And I slowly started doing so. And the most pivotal piece of advice came when one day we were both in my room in bed and we both couldn't sleep. And I told him, I said, brother, I'm gonna pursue higher education after high school, and, but I don't know what to do yet. What advice can you give me since You've, you've been through it. And he told me, well, 
first of all, I think college is a great investment in life, and you're going to do great things. And you don't, know, you don't need to know what you want to do yet. And, but he said, I have one problem with your plan, though. And I was like, what is that? And he told me, you need to start using your full potential. If I've heard anything from, from my time in Mexico, it's that you have so much potential, but you simply aren't using it. And at the time, I told him, that's nonsense. Who told you that? Like, get out of here. <laughs> See, at the, time, at the time, I was a person that wanted to be liked by everyone. I was, I was a person that never wanted to get out of his comfort zone and just wanted to be a person and be happy. And if anyone tried to get me out of my comfort zone, like my brother did that day, he, I verbally pushed them away or, or verbally attacked them. And, and I thought long and hard about, the, about his words. I let them sink in, and before we know it, we were at O'Hare again, dropping him off, and he hugged me, and he told me, don't forget what I told you. Several days later, the words kept sinking into my mind, and I was in classes resumed, and I started using them as words for dedication. I slowly started, I slowly started to not care what other people thought about me, and I started becoming the person that I wanted to be, and not what other people wanted me to be. And to this day, I am now a Goshen College student, and I still use those words to this day. And in that short three-week period that my brother was here, he shaped me into the person that I am today. Thank you. Eder, I love you. I know you're going to watch this video, and I love you. <laughs> Thank you. How does one end up on a boat with 190 Mennonites in the middle of Ukraine? Well, <laughs> that's the exact situation that I found myself in a couple of weeks before my senior year of high school. My grandparents and my mom had asked me if I wanted to go on this Mennonite heritage cruise to find the villages where my ancestors had lived. And for some reason, a decision I still do not understand to this day, I said yes. Maybe it was a whim based on travel illusions of grandeur or a desire to leave the continent that I'd spent my whole life on. Whatever it was, that whim would lead to a year of selling donuts at a just above minimum wage job to pay for the plane ticket. And my travel illusions would be shattered before our plane even touched down in Odessa, southern Ukraine. Our trip got off to a rocky start. Our first flight went well and I landed in Washington, D.C full of hope and ready for my first transcontinental flight. Unfortunately, that flight had been canceled and no one had bothered to tell us. So the four of us were running around the airport like crazy, trying to find another way to get there, and we did. We got the last four seats on an overnight flight to the wrong country in Europe. Seemed perfect. The exception that my mom and I were in the very middle of the very back row next to the bathrooms for the seven hour overnight flight. I did not get a wink of sleep. After two more flights, so four in total, we landed in Odessa. As I'm walking across the tarmac with my backpack on my back, I realize that we're walking towards a warehouse. And as we get closer, it dawns on me that that is not a warehouse, that is in fact the airport. And when I walk in the double doors, the first thing that I notice is that the room is divided in half. 
by men in military fatigues holding what appear to be machine guns. And I feel the panic start to rise in my body, and I am freaking out. The words to describe how I was feeling cannot be used in this story. For <laughs> Fortunately, it had a bit of an anticlimactic ending, and we headed through customs with just a few questions asked about why we were here and where we were going, two things I didn't know how to answer for myself. But as we headed on to our next challenge, we discovered that in the shuffle of flights and co different countries, our bags had been lost. This led us on an hour and a half game of what I would describe as verbal Pictionary, trying to explain to the officials who only spoke Ukrainian where our bags had gone as we only spoke English. After an hour and a half, exasperated, we decided to just head to the hotel room. We were in Odessa, and we had just two days before our boat would leave. Once the boat left, we would leave with it, never to return to that city, and our bags would be lost for good. So we spent those two days in a panic. The second time we were in a panic on that trip. Um, running around trying to find clothes in our size because all we had were the clothes on our back, making phone calls and talking to hotel officials and all of the people from the airline. And there were numerous more cultural gaffes along the way, including my mom and I getting kicked out of an opera house. It was not a good time. <laughs> As in a miracle, though, our bags arrived just hours before we got on the boat. And once we got on the boat, it turned into the idyllic European vacation that I had been hoping for. Meals eaten on the upper deck, beautiful scenery. We walked through these beautiful touristy towns on the Black Sea with bright blue Orthodox churches springing up out of town squares, kittens roaming streets that were lined with apricot trees. Later in the trip, I would eat one of these apricots and get very sick, but that's a story for another time and the coffee shops on every corner, which were perfect for maintaining my caffeine addiction. And I felt this sense of contentment and adventure that I had been searching for this whole time. Unfortunately, this feeling was not to last. As we moved past the Black Sea, the boat began to sail through more and more country. We spent whole days on the boat just staring out at what seemed to be the same piece of scenery repeated over and over and over again. And despite the fact that there were 190 other Mennonites on board, I felt lonely and bored and isolated. I sat on the upper deck and read George Orwell's 1984, you know it's bad when you're doing your summer homework on a vacation. <laughs> and I felt this way because I couldn't relate to anyone. My grandparents and my mom seemed to flit from conversation to conversation all three of them proficient in the Mennonite game. They created a family. I would even describe it as their own community on the boat, eating with other people, sharing stories from their traditional Mennonite backgrounds. And I was separated by age and culture because other than my mom and I, nearly everyone on the boat was over the age of 65. And so I sat there. And this boredom and isolation came to a peak when we reached the section of the cruise reserved for village tours. This was the pinnacle of the cruise, why we had all come here, to get on buses, head out into the country, and drive through the villages where our ancestors had lived. And when we got to this day, I was not excited for an eight-hour tour over dusty dirt roads. Nevertheless, I boarded our bus, nicknamed the number one couch of the year, and headed off into the countryside. There, we encountered potholes so large that the bus had to raise itself up on hydraulics, drive over them, and then lower, themselves, lower itself back down. 
And as we continued on this eight-hour tour, people kept asking to see more things and stop and take pictures, and eight hours quickly slid into 14. And it was my 17th birthday, and I was hungry, and I was irritable, and I was exhausted, and I was so, so tired of peeing in fields. <laughs> so when we pulled up to an abandoned train station, I was not excited. My first thought was, why on earth are we at an abandoned train station? And my second was, where's the bathroom? Given that it was an abandoned train station, I settled for a shack with two holes in the ground and made do. It was dark by that point, and when I hurried back to join the rest of the groups, the only lights were coming from the headlights of the bus and a couple iPhone cameras. I noticed that the group had gathered in a circle on these train tracks. And as I rushed up to join them, I heard the leaders explain that this was the train station that Mennonites had used to flee. And later, under Stalin, it would be the train station that had carried them to gulags or execution. The leaders recounted that as each group of Mennonites left, those that remained sang the German hymn, Take thou my hand, O Father, and lead thou me. And when there were no more Mennonites left to sing and the last group was headed off on the train, the native Ukrainians, who had never had an easy relationship with the Mennonites, sang that hymn to them. So we stood there in the dark. I couldn't make out any of the faces of the people around me, and I didn't know any of the German lyrics, but we stood there in a circle on those train tracks and sang that hymn. And in that moment, I was bound to these people in the way that I had been searching for this whole trip. I was bound to this heritage and this culture and this community. I was bound in the same way that all of those Mennonites had been bound together 74 years ago at that same spot. And when I got home after the trip, I continued to reflect on this moment. And I recalled another from the trip. A group of historians and psychologists the leaders had brought on told us that trauma is passed on genetically, that trauma is something that is felt and dealt with through generations. And as I re remembered that and recalled that, I came to the conclusion that if trauma is passed on genetically, then resilience is too that the resilience and strength of my ancestors who held tight to their beliefs despite the cost is in me today. And the only way that I could have found out any of this was from 190 Mennonites on a boat in Ukraine. <laughs>